Good morning, Forest View. Last week, Nat ended with a cliffhanger, then presumptuously promised I'd finish the story even though I'd already written most of this. So I guess I'm obligated to get to the conclusion eventually. But first, I'll tackle my original topic. After four weeks of Luth, Ruth, I'm going to look at Boaz. And I really like Boaz. I'm drawn to his character differently than others in the Bible. And at first, I couldn't quite put my finger on it. But as I've been preparing, I've realized I'm drawn to him because he is so unique. He's not special, per se, but unique. Boaz strikes me as an ordinary guy doing ordinary things. And those aren't the stories we usually hear in the Bible. An ordinary guy doing ordinary things. Now, to be clear, the Bible is full of ordinary people. I expect we've heard plenty of devotionals or sermons which underscore God consistently uses the overlooked and the marginalized to further his kingdom. The tone of these messages seems to be God used David, and he was an undersized shepherd boy. God used Moses, and he was a terrible speaker. God used Rahab, and she was a Gentile innkeeper. And God used Gideon, and he was the weakest member of the weakest family of the weakest tribe in all of Israel. And if God can use them, well, he can use you too. And yes, David was a boy who killed a Philistine giant. And Moses was a terrible speaker who grew up in a palace and had a conversation with a burning bush. Rahab was just an innkeeper until she was confronted by enemy spies on the eve of battle. And yes, Gideon was a nobody. A nobody who had a conversation with an angel, you know, like we all have. All of these ordinary people do extraordinary things. And I'm supposed to be encouraged that God can use anyone, but their ordinariness, it's presented as something that can make them relatable. But I struggle to relate to them at all. On the other hand, the Bible is also full of extra, extraordinary people who can't seem to do the most basic things right. As king, David has power over all of Israel, and yet, you assume I'm going to say Beersheba. Instead, I'll look at the way he plays favorites with his children, is only emotionally available to some of them, and sends his family into chaos. Samson was blessed by God. He used his strength to subdue the Philistines over and over again, but undid himself with gossip because he couldn't stand a full week of Delilah's nagging. Peter. Peter is on the mountain. He sees Elijah and Moses talking to Jesus. He hears the voice of God saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And six months later, a teenage girl intimidates this rock into denying he ever met the man. So I look at these characters, and rather than being inspired, I get discouraged. If the people who heard God's voice, 
who saw him in dreams, who talked to his angels, can't get it right, then what chance do I have? And as an aside, I do realize that reading the Bible to be inspired by people is a mistake. I should be reading it to be inspired by God and the fact that God never abandons his people no matter how flawed they are. But I'm just as flawed. So here we are. Okay, on to Boaz. Boaz is refreshing because he is something completely different. We see lots of simple people doing extraordinary things. And we see extraordinary people failing to do the most simplest of things. I would argue Boaz is an ordinary guy doing the ordinary things he is supposed to do, the everyday things God expects him to do. When Ruth is gleaning in the fields, we're impressed that he doesn't chase her off. We give him credit when he lets her continue. But the law of Moses is clear here. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor. Okay, fair enough. But Ruth wasn't just poor. She was also a foreigner. Surely Boaz should get extra credit for being kind to a foreigner. All right, the verse continues on the next page. And the foreigner. Oh. Three chapters later, Leviticus repeats itself word for word. Cole didn't need to make a new slide. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. Deuteronomy 19 has a similar message. When you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. So, the poor, the widow, and the foreigner. Ruth is all three. So it should not have mattered which field Ruth gleaned in that day. She should have been welcomed by everyone. All the farmers in Bethlehem are under the same law, specifically Leviticus 33. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. Ruth should have been welcomed by all. But we know that's not the case. In verse 22, Naomi warns she could be harmed in the fields. In verse 15, Boaz tells his workers not to harass Ruth, which means he assumes they're going to harass Ruth. Boaz is different. He's unique. But I maintain he isn't special because Boaz is an example of what normal is supposed to look like. Boaz has never seen God. No angels have come to have a chat with him. But Boaz loves God. He knows what God expects, and he follows the commandments. The fact that we read Ruth and think he's extraordinary says more about us, how little we expect of others, how little we expect of ourselves, and how comfortable we are with mediocrity than it does about him. And there's other selfless men in the Bible who show unexpected compassion to women. Men like Joseph, who chooses not to divorce Mary. But Joseph 
needed to have a conversation with an angel first. For Boaz, it's instinct. He reminds me of the blessed person in Psalm 1. The one who does not walk in step with the wicked or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is the law of the Lord. There are three scenes with Boaz in the book of Ruth. In all three, he maintains this pattern of consistently doing what we ought to expect of him. First in the fields, then at the threshing floor, a passage net detailed last week. And if I could go on a digression here for a few minutes to talk about Naomi. Because last week, Nat covered the actions of Ruth and Boaz at the threshing floor. But it's Naomi that jumps out to me in this passage. And last week, Nat said, there's a lot we don't understand about this passage. And I completely agree. The first time I read it, I was not sure what had just happened. Did Naomi tell Ruth to seduce Boaz? Did they sleep together? Okay, so they didn't sleep together. Were they supposed to sleep together? And what's the deal with uncovering his feet? To make matters worse, the first three commentaries I consulted all said something different. The first was incredulous and told me to get my mind out of the gutter and chastised me for thinking anything untoward could be happening here. Ruth is only proposing. Taking off a person's shoes is simply, and I want to get this right, the ritualistic customs of ancient Israel. They were never going to sleep together. The second commentary, they totally slept together. Uncovered his feet is an obvious euphemism. The third, by Charles Halton, suggests that Naomi is getting impatient because it's been three months since she identified Boaz as the kinsman redeemer. Their savior, but Boaz still hasn't made his move. Every day, Ruth is out in those fields and nothing. Naomi decides it's time to take matters into her own hands. Naomi tells Ruth to go to the threshing floor while he's drunk, sleep with him. He'll think you're a prostitute with no strings attached. And according to Hosea, drunkenness in prostitutes is kind of the norm when the men stay overnight at the threshing floor. But in the morning, Boaz will realize who you really are and will need to marry you. A crazy plan, but it has precedent. Last week, Nat used the term levriot marriage, the obligation of a brother to marry his sister-in-law should the brother die before they had children. The very first example of levriot marriage in the Bible happens in Genesis, when Tamar deceived Judah in this exact same way. Their son, Perez, was the patriarch of Naomi's family clan in Bethlehem. So yeah, crazy, but proven effective. Halton suggests that Ruth doesn't go through with the plan, instead waits for Boaz to wake up and then tells Naomi's endgame instead. That is, she proposes marriage. But this impatience of Naomi, oh, I get that. Last month, the Skinners binge-watched a series of unfortunate events. It follows the adventures of three young orphans as a group of nefarious criminals tries to steal their inherited fortune. It's a kid's show. In the beginning, there are good guys 
and there are bad guys. And it's easy to tell them apart. The good guys do good things, the bad guys do bad things. The good guys are moral, the bad guys immoral. And then somewhere around season two, things get complicated because bad guys start doing good things. Now they're doing these things for selfish, manipulative reasons, but the question of moral relativism is introduced. By the end of the series, we often notice that the good guys do bad things, terrible things, but for all the right reasons. In the penultimate episode, there's a courtroom scene where the orphans are asked, did you steal the keys? Well, yes, but. And did you start that fire? Yes, but. And did you lie to the police? We, yes, but. It's so easy to convince ourselves to do the wrong thing for the right reason. Abraham goes to Egypt and tells Sarai, pretend you're my sister. In Gethsemane, Peter jumps out with a sword to cut off an ear. I think that's what Naomi is doing her. Her reasons are completely understandable. Security for Ruth. But she's going about it in the wrong way. Ultimately, this is why Ruth disobeys her. Okay, digression over, back to Boaz. At the threshing floor, we see Ruth, a younger woman seeking to marry Boaz. He easily could have taken advantage of her, but doesn't. And we learn the reason he's been quiet for the last three months, even though he was interested, is that he assumed she'd want to marry someone younger, so he respectfully stayed out of it. The opportunity exists for them to be married right there and then, at least in the eyes of God, right? That was Naomi's plan. But Boaz insists they wait for this, they insist they wait to do this the proper way according to the law. And this is the cliffhanger Nat introduced last week. The law recognizes there is someone closer in relation than him. And we should have seen this coming because in chapter two, Naomi tells Ruth, Boaz is one of our kinsmen redeemers. Which brings us to the third scene today, the third scene in today's story, Boaz at the Gate, chapter four. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. Why the city gate? All of these farmers lived in the city. They slept in the city where it was nice and safe, but their fields were outside the city walls. Each day, every single worker would need to pass through the gate. If you wanted to catch someone, you'd get there early and you'd wait. Eventually, they had to come by. And because so much business happens at the gate, the town officials would also gather there. It's where they build municipal offices, which is why in the next verse, Boaz is able to find 10 elders of the city to sit down and be a witness to their discussion and transaction. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, 
who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belongs to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. A reminder. Land in ancient Israel could be sold, but it was never really gone. Like a pawn shop, the sellers always had the right to buy it back. Now, if the seller died, the right didn't die with them. It fell to the nearest relative. And there's no sign the nearer kinsmen knew the land was available until this meeting with Boaz. But once the kinsman becomes aware, he is keen until he learns the land comes with an obligation to marry Ruth. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And in the following verses, in the presence of the elders, they exchange a sandal. Essentially, Boaz gets a receipt, a guarantee that the nearer kinsman has given up his right to purchase the property. Therefore, Boaz is able to buy it, marry Ruth, and preserve this land so Ruth's children will have something to inherit and her widowed husband's family name can live on. How often do we see characters cheating each other out of an inheritance? Jacob dressing up as Esau, Joseph's brothers bringing back the cloak and pretending he's dead. Manipulating a negotiation and taking advantage of each other seems to be the default settings for humanity. There's a rule in Deuteronomy that commands the Israelites not to move the boundary stones in the fields lest their neighbors be denied their inheritance. Can you imagine how often they must have been kicking over the boundary stones that God had to remind them not to do it? But Boaz, Boaz doesn't do any of that. He doesn't manipulate or deceive about his intentions. He puts all his cards on the table and negotiates openly. Now, if he had slept with Ruth the night before, as Naomi had planned, Ruth would be safe, right? She'd be secure and married, but the nearer kinsmen would still have the rights to the land. At any point, this friend could have bought the property and Ruth's descendants would no longer have anything to inherit. By following the rules, Boaz can offer security to Ruth and an inheritance to Mahlon's line. Mahlon. I should point out the inspired literary choice that is made here. Up until now, we didn't know who Ruth's first husband was. We know Naomi had two sons. We know she had two daughters-in-law, but we did not know who had married whom. It's only at this moment in verse 10 when Boaz says, I have acquired Ruth and Mahlon's property so that his name will not disappear from his family or the town records, that the Bible actually names Mahlon, reinforcing Boaz's claim that the name will not be lost. So, in the fields, at the threshing floor, beside the gate. In all three instances, Boaz is just an ordinary guy doing the everyday things 
God expects him to do. Now, if you were here, you might object. Come up to me afterwards over coffee and say that Boaz goes beyond the requirements of Leviticus, right? In chapter 2, he tells his men to throw some extra sheaves her way on purpose. At the threshing floor, he sends her home with six measures of barley for Naomi. Leviticus didn't tell him to do that, to which I would argue yes. Absolutely yes. But no. Deuteronomy 10. For the Lord your God is God, mighty and awesome. He loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. God says, this is who I am, love. And God's commandment to Boaz in the Old Testament, to the church in the New Testament, and to us today is to be like him. At Forest View, we exist to be a community that meets Jesus and becomes more like him. Becoming more like him means loving others, especially those in need. That's what Boaz is doing. We shouldn't be inclined to praise Boaz because he doesn't take advantage of Ruth. We shouldn't be excited that he gives her six measures from the abundant pile that he's sleeping on. We should be heartbroken that this wasn't and still isn't the norm. Loving others doesn't mean discovering and then meeting the minimum expectations. By nature, love is extravagant. It is generous. How lucky are we that God loves us extravagantly? Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan pitied, he bandaged, he anointed, he carried, he paid for the beaten man. His mercy, his love for his neighbor was extravagant. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. One more time. Because a few weeks ago, Nat's dinging bell demonstrated the importance of repetition. Boaz is an example of what normal is supposed to look like. The fact that we read Ruth and think he's extraordinary says more about us, how little we expect of others, how little we expect of ourselves, and how comfortable we are with mediocrity than it does about him. How often do we see stories on social media that celebrate one person showing simple, basic kindness to another? Photos that get liked, retweeted, and upvoted until they become viral, but only because our expectations are so low. Okay. This gospel according to Ruth is a great story, but in terms of my life, here and now, in the midst of a pandemic, what can I learn from Boaz? What's the good news? Three things. First, this story reminds me that I don't need to hear God's voice before I do the right thing. Boaz has never seen God. Now that's something I can relate to. I've never seen God. I've never heard him. I've learned that God often speaks through the Bible, 
through other people, sometimes through coincidences, even through our own thoughts and conscience. But I've never heard that voice. This story and Boaz's faithfulness reminds me that I can keep waiting to hear it, but it isn't a prerequisite for faithfulness. Second, Boaz takes advantage of opportunities for righteousness that are right in front of him. I struggle with this. I'll often hear a voice in my head saying, you should do this, you should call them, you should send a thank you note to her or an encouraging email to them, and I don't. Often, I'll know the right thing to do, and I won't do it. Which isn't to say I do the opposite. I don't send mean-spirited emails. I just don't do anything at all. Throughout Lent, in the prayer of confession before communion, we've been invited to confess the things we've done and the things we've left undone. The things we've left undone. I need the prayer team to start leaving me a bigger gap. A few weeks ago, I was walking home and noticed my neighbor's tire was flat. And my first thought was that she wouldn't notice in the morning because it was on the passenger side. I should grab my new tire gauge. I'd bought one that week. Remember what I said about God speaking through coincidences. I have a compressor, I could fix it, but it, but it probably wasn't flat. The, the car was parked on a pretty steep angle and there was a lot of snow. It was probably just a shadow. And I continued this conversation with myself until I was distracted by something else, probably this sermon, and completely forgot about it. That is until I saw the car on the road the next day. The tire was flat, emergency flat. And I was right, because it was on the passenger side, she hadn't seen it. The timing of this flat tire object lesson was serendipitous, because earlier that day, I'd been teaching my class about the Spartans of ancient Greece. Now, my favorite story about the Spartans involves a stubborn schoolboy being disemboweled by an albino fox. It is an amazing story, but it is not relevant to this sermon. However, my second favorite story about the Spartans applies to both Boaz and the flat tire. It happened during the Olympic Games. The stadium at Olympia is a simple dirt field with a sloped lawn on either side so that spectators could see over the people who were sitting in front of them. And we know from centuries of coins that the Greeks accidentally dropped that people tended to sit with their own cities in the same spots every four years. Now, one year, an old Athenian man arrived late in the day and was walking along the edge of that grass, looking for a seat. And everyone was jeering him because the seats had been gone since sunrise and he was walking their view, blocking their view of the games. He passed the Corinthians, he passed the Phocians, even his own Athenians, until he reached the space where the Spartans were sitting. Immediately, without a word, every Spartan younger than him and a great many who were older jumped up to offer him their seat. The entire stadium burst into applause. 
Then the old man turned to the crowd with a heavy sigh and said, every Greek knows what is right, but only the Spartans do it. Boaz didn't go searching in the fields for someone to help that day. But when Ruth appeared, he didn't look away. Every day, there will be opportunities for righteousness. I need to practice seeing them and then acting. Because currently, I'm the kind of guy who will be driving home from school, praying that God will show me how I can help others. Here, an ad for Canadian Blood Services, desperate for O negative donors to make an appointment and then turn down the radio so I can listen more carefully to God. And the third thing we can learn from Boaz. Boaz is shockingly inclusive. It would have been easy for Boaz to avoid Ruth, to exclude her, to align himself with the rest of the community. No one would have given it a second thought, including Ruth, who expected to be excluded. Instead, he chooses to be shockingly inclusive. Shocking as far as society is concerned, not as far as God is concerned. And I say he's shockingly inclusive. Perhaps I should just say he loved her. It's easy to notice that Boaz is a lot like Jesus. And Nat will be comparing them next week, or at least he will be now. But for me, when I'm at school with my colleagues, who is it easy for me to exclude? What does it look like for me to love instead? In the context of church, of Forest View, who is it easy to exclude? Who expects to be excluded? What does it look like for us to love instead? And a final thought. Why Boaz? Two weeks ago, Leanne observed there are times when God puts the right people in the right place at the right time. So what is so right about Boaz? And I'll admit, at this point, I'm diverting from commentary into the realm of speculation and imagination. And I could be wrong. But has anyone else wondered why Boaz isn't already married? He's older, successful, righteous. Surely he'd be a catch. Some authors suggest maybe he had been married. Perhaps his wife died in the famine that forced Naomi and Elimelech to leave Bethlehem in the first place. Others say maybe he was already married when he agreed to marry Ruth. It's unlikely, but technically this Leveret marriage is one of the few times polygamy is sanctioned. Allow me to suggest a third possibility. To answer why Boaz, consider who was Boaz. Chapter 4 only tells us the name of his father, Salmon. That's it. But Matthew 1 gives us the name of his mother, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab, that same Canaanite innkeeper who helped the Israelite spies in Jericho the night before battle. 
Her house was spared, and in the aftermath, apparently, this Gentile woman married a man, Salmon, from the tribe of Judah. And I suppose it's possible a child born of a conqueror and an indigenous woman could be eagerly welcomed and accepted by a community at large. But is it likely? Perhaps as a child, Boaz felt the stigma of being born to a Canaanite, the enemy of Israel. Perhaps his physical features were a constant reminder that he was different. Perhaps he spoke with an accent and endured consistent prejudice. Maybe this stigma caused him to be overlooked when fathers went looking for husbands for their daughters. Could this be why Boaz was quick to offer help to Ruth in the field? Because he was attuned to the difficulties facing outsiders. Again, this is only imaginative speculation, but it makes me realize that each of us has unique lived experience that should attune us to the needs of others. This is what God is hinting at when he says, love those who were foreigners, because you were foreigners in Egypt. You have been them. You should help. We were never foreigners in Egypt, but our community has had our own extraordinary struggles. Some of us have lost children, others, parents, or jobs without warning. Some are new to Canada and to English. We've been sick, then healthy, then sick again, we also deal with simpler struggles. Have any of us had a card declined at a grocery store with a long line behind us, or worked on a project forever and still failed, or really needed a babysitter? I could write a psalm by listing them. The ordinary struggles that attune us to the needs of others. I am confident at some point, because of this attunement, we will be the right persons that God will put in the right place at the right time. My prayer is what, when the time comes, like Boaz, our instinct will be to help. We will transform our love for God into love for others, because that is what normal is supposed to look like in the kingdom of God.